0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. People constantly want to label you. For years, I wrote about finance, and everybody was like, oh, he's that finance guy. Then I started writing about going broke and, and how to recover and people thought it was crazy like I lost a big size audience but then you get a new audience and so you just have to do what your creative compulsions tell you to do I'm not a therapist I'm just a writer and I have a lot of experiences that affected me and since I have no training on helping people I have to write about my experience in order to help people whether it's starting from being broke or being in a bad relationship or being suicidal have to kind of start with the low point and there's an arc to that story
1: in your case you share a lot of really personal stuff on your podcast in the articles that you write do you ever get like a vulnerability hangover where you're all oops i shouldn't have said that or did i share too much or is it ever awkward or uncomfortable for you when you do share what's going on in your personal life
0: yeah i mean i kind of have a role where I don't actually publish an article unless I'm afraid I'm sharing too much. Oh. <laughs> so very special podcast today. We have Amy Moore and Amy, this is your second time on the podcast. Third time, third time. The first one was for 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do and your other book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Am I getting right. the title right? Because there's you like a double it. negative right. in there. And then you're about to have, or by the end of this year, you're going to have 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, which right. I'm really looking forward to, and we'll have you back on the podcast for that. And then the second time you were on the podcast, you described this amazing way you and your husband basically started from scratch uh, a business from home that paid the bills and made money, and and anybody could start from from their home. And it was a great, a great episode, totally different from the other episode. Uh, I mean, both were great, but- There are different topics. And now you're on, in part, I'm thanking you for coming on because in part you're going to interview me a little bit. But I actually have one or two questions for you first. Okay, sure. I've been seeing you quoted in lots of articles lately. Like, it seems like when you write articles, other people quote you. Did you know that was happening?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I never know where it's going to end up. Somebody emailed me this week and said, oh, a great article in the newspaper. And they sent me a picture of the newspaper. And I said, what paper is it? He said it was the Tampa Bay Times. I had no idea. But sometimes it gets syndicated, but sometimes it also just... People quote me and they don't necessarily tell me that it gets quoted.
0: Yeah, like uh, I think um, the other day I saw an article, I think it was about by a prior podcast guest here, Nell Scoville, writing about um, David Letterman and how when she worked at Letterman and, and now there wa- wasn't that many women working for David Letterman's show and even now in his new show. And uh, she quoted you about women in the workforce. Oh. And uh, then I read another article and I just see your name. It was about when you should work for free, oh, and you and right. you were quoted. Uh, I don't know if you saw that article. Did you see that article? It, it quoted another article you wrote about when you should do things for free.
1: I think I got a Google alert that said I was quoted in some article for about that topic. Yeah, and you
0: say if if it's um, for exposure, for um, you know a resume building. Uh, what were the other two things?
1: Great question. I have <laughs> no idea at this point. Um,
0: I'm, I'm gonna look it up because it was specifically how she how she quoted you. Uh, Because I think this is an interesting topic. All the time, of course, we're all asked to do things for free. Right. And we're all given the bullshit uh, excuse, oh, this will be great exposure for you. So I'm just, I I am curious how you identify, uh, you know, where the line is on these different things. So, okay, you're quoted... uh, in an article on Inc, Amy Morin writes that there are only four times you should work for free: when you earn exposure, when you expand on your real life experience, when you gain a valuable addition to your resume, and when it's for a cause that you believe in. So, a cause that you believe in—I'll take that for granted. A lot of people, right. you know, volunteer and so on. Um, when you when you earn exposure, like when I've run a business, so many times companies would say to me, "Oh, this will be great exposure when people see you did right. work for us." Like, where do you draw the line? Because that's that's the most common way people try to get you to do stuff for free.
1: Yeah, I think you have to be really careful because uh, the number of things you do for free for exposure that will actually help you is pretty slim to none. So I think if it's something that will look good on your resume, like if you give a Google talk, Google doesn't pay you, but... You get to put that on your resume that you spoke at Google.
0: Right. Like, have you given a Google talk? Yeah. So have I? Right. We did it for free. Right.
1: (laughs) Same with TEDx. It wasn't, uh, I knew I wasn't going to get paid for it, but at the same time, it was free. But it's gotten me millions of views on YouTube. So it was worth it. But so I think it's really about figuring out what kind of exposure. So many people, I think, are like, oh, take my picture for free and then I'll put it on my website, but I'll say, tell everybody that you took that photo. Well, if it's like billsblog.com and Nobody reads his blog anyway. Having your photo credit isn't going to actually bring you business if you live in Kansas and nobody in Kansas reads this website. So I think it's really important to find out what's what's the exposure. Or as a speaker, people will say, you know, there'll be so many people in the audience and that will build your brand or help you with exposure. Well, who's in the audience and is it actually going to lead to, to something new? Most times I think not.
0: Yeah, and also... Kind of related to this is if you're a small business and another small business wants you to do a service for them and they say, "Oh, we don't have any we're raising money, we'll give you a little piece of equity. Um, <laughs> that's the same as free, right? But people don't realize it because it sounds like, oh my gosh, if they're a big and they' and they're saying, we're the next Uber, right you could get I, I've never made money getting paid in equity for anything, and I've done it. I've done free, I've done I've done every stupid thing you could do for free, uh, including working for equity, and it never works.
1: Yeah, and early on when I started, there were mental health apps and mental health websites and software and all of these people would ask me that. Do you want to do it do this for us or help us with this project and we'll give you a piece of equity? And the first few times I thought, well, that sounds great, because it could go on and, and do something. And then that realization sunk in that it's probably not going to be worth any money if and if they don't want to pay me up front, then I probably don't want to spend my time doing it. If it's Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's like so I I would add like two things. Or two ideas to your list. One is if it's instantaneous or fast, I, I'll do something for free. Right. So if somebody says, Can you write a blurb for my book? And I read the book and I like it. I'm happy to do that for free mm-hmm. because then your name is on the, every book and it is kind of a there's definite exposure there if the book does well and it didn't take you that much time anyway if the book doesn't do well. And then I think for the exposure, it's so easy to rationalize in your head. Oh, yeah, this is good exposure. You should sort of write the rules of what of where the line is for exposure. Like, will a million people see this? Right. Or you know, if it, it, you have to kind of write the criteria in advance and not break your rules. Yes. So, so that that's really important. Have a, the discipline to not break your, your rules.
1: Yes, I, mean, I think that's huge because it's so tempting in the moment to say yes when somebody asks you to do something, but to have those rules and stick to them.
0: Yeah, like what, it, what, it, like I'm sure, like when you write these articles for Inc., you're probably doing them semi. Uh, some of these articles are for for free. I, I don't know about Inc., but but for some of these publications, but that's pretty good exposure. It gets you quoted in all these places. Uh, it builds relationships with lots of editors who move on to do other things. So that kind of stuff, and and it's quick to do. It's quick to write. Right. An article. Uh, if you're used to kind of churning out articles, I don't say churning in a bad way, but I write articles. We, we both write articles on demand, right? So, um, what other what other what other rules would you add to that now? Because I think this is such a the, the 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 notion of working for free is such an important one.
1: Yeah, and sometimes you can directly tell what the. Uh, your return is on your investment of your time. But I think sometimes you just never know too. Sometimes I'll have an article that goes somewhere that goes somewhere and somebody will then hire me down the road and you never really know how all, how all of that happened. But I think it's just really important to pay attention to, to your time where it's going and how much of an investment you're putting in and what you expect to get back.
0: And I guess it's like you said, like Google or TEDx you would do for free because then it's not so much that your talk might be great or that the audience might be great is that you're associating yourself with a brand that is considered super high quality. Right. So then you get, uh, it, 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 it signals that you're also super high quality. So that's, that's. it's not just a resume thing, it brings up status. So like if, if Barack Obama came to you and said, hey, uh, will, will, will you mow my lawn and uh, uh, have coffee with me for free? I, I would say yes to that. Right. <laughs> And then I could say, you know, special advisor to Barack Obama one day.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, you know, I had made that rule. I said, I'm not going to speak for free anymore unless it's a charity or cause that I really believe in. And then about the next week, Google said, hey, can you come do a Google talk? And I thought, oh, yeah, that's one of the exceptions (laughs) to the rule.
0: Right. But like if McDonald's called you and said, would you speak for free to us? McDonald's is a a big brand name. We're a Fortune 20 company. We're the biggest restaurant in the world. Will you speak at our headquarters for free? Probably wouldn't do it,
1: right? Because then I'd also wonder, well, why if you make all of this money, why aren't you paying me for my time too? So yeah, because I find that that happens sometimes. The bigger the company, the less that they pay people, or the less they want to pay because they think you should just do it just to be associated with them.
0: Yeah, and also there's there there's a bureaucracy where they're divided into like a thousand different groups with different l. So the budget of the of the organization within the organization that's asking to speak might not have a big speaking budget. But they can usually figure out how to get if you if you push,
1: right, right that they can buy books or they can buy something else and make it happen anyway in the end. So you still get compensated.
0: I am constantly asked to speak at conferences for free, and they all have arguments why I should speak for free, and then they get upset when yes. I say no.
1: Yes, and
0: and it's one thing being like on a podcast uh, for free. There's an audience. There's a lot of exposure. You spend a lot of I'm using the exposure argument, um, but you sp- but you get a lot of time to get your real message out. It's not just you're doing something that no one sees. You you, you have an, an hour, an hour and a half to really talk instead of just being on a radio show for three minutes or something.
1: Right, and that was going to be one of my questions today. How do you decide what to say yes to and how do you decide what to say no to? You wrote The Power of No. I
0: wrote The Power <laughs> of No. Okay, let's start with that. So, aim, so, so the premise of this podcast really is that I want to someone to interview me and Amy is a perfect choice because she's super mentally strong after writing these books and she's been on the podcast a couple times and knows me knows me well and I'm excited
1: Thanks I'm also a therapist but I'll try not to I'll try to wear my author mentally strong author hat rather than my therapist no, hat No
0: wear your therapist hat
1: Yeah okay Yeah I need it Game on so then, how do you decide? Are you a
0: therapist or a psychiatrist? Can you prescribe medicine to me, me right now?
1: I cannot prescribe medicine.
0: <laughs> if you're a therapist, are you sort of, and not a psychiatrist, are you sort of biased against uh, prescribing medicine because that's not in your, in your, what you're allowed to do?
1: No, I like to work with psychiatrists hand in hand to say, okay, if we're going to prescribe an antidepressant, then we're also going to be working on these skills. Or if we're going to be working on anxiety, how can we both work together and hand in hand? I find most people, come to me because they don't want medicine. And so sometimes, and I say, that's great, let's use medicine as a last resort and let's try to use therapy as a, as a tool first. And then if that doesn't work, sometimes I'll try to talk them into going there just as a way to say, you're so depressed right now, you can't think straight, and it's really hard for you to apply this stuff until you get over that next hurdle. And medicine might be the best way to do that. But I try to use it as a last resort as well.
0: And why do they call them antidepressants instead of pro-happy drugs? <laughs> like why can't I don't want an antidepressant. I want a pro-happy drug.
1: Yeah, exactly, right.
0: <laughs> I mean, what would be a, a pro-happy drug? What makes are there any Is there anything out there that you think would make a patient happier as opposed to less depressed?
1: You, you know, I guess if somebody has bipolar and we put them on an antidepressant, that's what happens sometimes is we toss them into a manic phase or a hypomanic phase, but that's that not could good be really either. Bad. right. <laughs> So I've seen that happen. That's why it's important to you know to really distinguish between depression and bipolar. For that reason, yeah,
0: I've seen people on bi- who, who mostly they had bipolar, but they mostly exhibited the depressive side. So they didn't really recognize that they had bipolar. And the more antidepressants prescribed to them, the worse they got. Until eventually, they went so far on the manic side, it became they had a psychotic episode. Right. So that's the danger of classic antidepressants if you have like bipolar 2, something like that.
1: Exactly. I'm
0: going to be a therapist in my next life.
1: <laughs> Great. Well, I know that's what you originally set out to be, right? Yes. <laughs> to get in the psychology world. Back to how do you say no? How do you decide what to say no to? Because stuff comes your way all the time. I know it does from interviews to opportunities to business investments. How do you decide when to say yes and when to say no?
0: Yeah, when to say no. First off, this is so such a critically important thing for careers and relationships and and just every aspect of life. And so uh, I wrote this book, which was a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller called The Power of No. And I remember it was, I got the deal for it the day after the book Choose Yourself came out, Hay House, which is like the self-help publisher, they called me and said, we'll do any book you want. And I said, I just said as a joke, let's do The Power of Now, but without the W. <laughs> And they said deal, (laughs) so suddenly I was doing the power of no, and um, then I had to think of what to write about because I don't know if you experience this with the mentally strong books, but I tend to write about the things that I've been historically very bad at because then the process of you know you know it's a, a great example I like to use is Brad Pitt should not should probably not write a book how to pick up women because. Nobody is going to relate to his. No one's going to learn or relate from his experience. But if I don't know you're me and you write a book at a pick up women, more people might pay attention actually because how did this schlubby guy uh, get in a dating world, get any dates at all? So, so with the power of no, I think I've typically had a very hard time saying no, and I had to spend a, a long time figuring out. Not only what to say no to, but but then how to say it because I'm very non-confrontational. Mm-hmm. like I really my typical way in the past of saying no has been to completely ignore the request forever. And people then will start writing like what did I do? like where are you? <laughs> and then eventually they stop talking to me when I fail to respond. I don't do this as much anymore, but that was my go-to technique of saying no. So so, there's several layers, and then there's the the other layer, which is at what point in your career do you start saying no? Like, s- saying no is important from the beginning. Like, you can't say yes to everything. But when you're in your twenties, you should probably say yes to more things than when you're in your thirties, and then when you're in your forties, and so on. Because when you're in twenties, you're still trying to figure out what you're good at and what you can do, and who your team is going to be for the next thirty or forty years. So you know, I was in my 20s and I was working for HBO but at the same time companies were asking me to build their websites uh, and this is related to what we were talking about earlier. Some would say for free, some would say for money and I would usually say yes to everything because I want—I was building my resume and my career and and then I wanted to build a business out of it and each yes gave me more and more experience. It gave me more and more knowledge and I would say yes to everything like even other businesses, like one time, some tea company wanted me to pitch them tea ideas. (laughs) And I just said, sure. And I went home and I started mixing different ingredients for tea and flavors. And I don't know, I was just saying yes to everything. Um, As long as it was fast, as long as it was like fast turnaround. Like I wouldn't say yes to some six month project that was miserable. But I think now I say no to almost everything. Like I, you, you kind of come up with your priori- priorities. So, like, family and relationships and family and loving relationships are a priority for me. So, I never want to demonstrate to my family, for instance, that I prioritize this podcast over them. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have a podcast during the day and they suddenly say to me, "Hey, can we go, you know, walk to the bookstore?" I'll say no because I already have a podcast scheduled, and this is the middle of the day, and I work. And they should know that, you know, work is important. But, you know, I won't prioritize going out with friends in the evening over spending time with them. So I would say no to friends and yes to my kids. Sure. So, um, and so, so let's say priorities are kids, uh, you know, uh, you know, work. So I'm involved in several businesses, uh, podcasts, writing, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this podcast in a, in a stand-up comedy club that I am a co-owner of. So comedy is on my priority list but still I won't prioritize these things over uh, you know, the important relationships in my life. And I won't prioritize going to a party over writing because writing is on my big priority list. Like I need to be able to write every day. Um, so I think in general, if, if things go against my priorities, it's, I, I know it's going to be a fast no. Um, if I have to travel and I really hate traveling, it's going to be a fast no, even if they're willing to pay me. So one time, one time I got asked to go to Chile, uh, the country. The president of Chile invited me, and he had a, he had a whole agenda lined up. We we're going to go to Easter Island. We we're going go to Antarctica. I was going to get run over by a tank safely. <laughs> Um, and do all sorts of things. And I I forget if they were going to pay or not, but there was, maybe I was going to fly on a private jet. there, the president's private jet. And I said no to that because I didn't want to go for two weeks to, I didn't want to go to Antarctica. I didn't want to go to Easter (laughs) Island. I didn't want to get run over by a tank. Even though the whole thing sounded like an exciting story, which I, I, again, I prioritize a a good story so I could write about it. There was just enough things. I didn't want to be away from family for two weeks. so if something is close to where I live, I, I say yes if it's not too hard and if it doesn't um, affect my priorities and money has become less important and resume stuff has become less important. And then how do I say no instead of just ghosting somebody as as they say, uh, I will just be really honest and I'll say, no, I, I can't do it. And I, but I don't necessarily give a reason. I don't feel like you should have to give yeah, a reason. Yeah,
1: I think that's very true. But I think most of us, feel like that, at least at first, like I have to say no because and fill in the blank. Rather than oh, And, and no usually the after the
0: because is a lie.
1: Right, right. <laughs> so I
0: can't go to your stupid destination wedding in Alaska because uh, my kid's graduating that day, but it's in the middle of February. How could they be graduating? <laughs> oh, I messed up my days. So, uh, so I just say I can't go.
1: Right, right. Okay. So one of the things that, particularly interests me. So I work with a lot of people with anxiety. Most of the people I work with who have anxiety will say, I can't do X, Y, or Z because until my anxiety is better or I'm too anxious. I have all these dreams that I'd like to do, but I can't because anxiety holds me back or I have to wait till my anxiety gets better. You've been really upfront with saying, I'm an anxious guy and here's all the things I do anyway. I can still do stand up comedy. I can still do this podcast. I still meet with all sorts of people from all over the planet. How do you? How do you do that?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because anxiety, as you know, as a therapist, could be totally debilitating. And I think anxiety—you would know better than me—but it comes from a lot of different sources. But I would say anxiety for me is 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 linked to, let's say, prior trauma or feelings about self-esteem. So, for instance, um, I'll get anxious in with with money if i feel like oh no i'm uh uh and this has happened more in the past than now but if i if i'm in a uh, uh, i think if i don't i don't have as much i should have a lot of confidence about making money but let's say 10 years ago i was less confident and if i was feeling like in a precarious money situation i would get so panicked it would be like i'm having a heart attack i couldn't i i wouldn't be able to sleep i would write on pads all night long, adding up like the money in each account I had or business opportunity I had and try to figure out how I'm going to live. And I just, all this worry would do nothing. Like worry never really accomplishes anything and just wastes time. And it would just be debilitating. But now with everything I do, I do get anxious about it. Like let's say I'm about to go, the most extreme example is if I'm about to go on stage for standup comedy, Public speaking is hard enough, is anxiety-producing enough, but then stand-up comedy, there's two extra things, which is A, they don't, the audience doesn't know you. Usually in public speaking, they know you. And and B, you have to make them laugh. Right. So in, with public speaking, which is still anxiety-provoking, they, they know you and you don't have to make them laugh. Uh, but with stand-up comedy, it's all the things with public speaking plus these two other things and usually have shorter amount of time. But I've gotten really anxious with both public speaking and stand-up And I've experimented with dealing with my anxiety before going on stage with with comedy. So for instance, is it better to have a drink or not have a drink? Is it better to, um, I don't know, have a lot of coffee or not have a lot of coffee? Like take a stimulant or not a stimulant? Is it better to uh, take like something anti-anxiety or not anti-anxiety or meditate or not meditate? And I find actually having a mild amount of anxiety is Mm -hmm. the best because you're you're not so anxious that it's ruining you, but you're anxious enough that you're like hyper aware of everything that's going on and you're ready and maybe you're confident. And I usually try to say the anxiety is just a tool. So I, I, I distance myself a little from it by acknowledging that it's there, like being aware of it as opposed to just living it. Um, uh, but in general, anxiety has been really hard for me. I always try to... Say now, what's the worst that could happen? Kind of like the standard things. Like, what, what's the worst that could happen and it's not so bad? Um, like, stand-up comedy, ultimately, 30 strangers from Norway who are in the club. Like, who cares if I don't do so well? It's not going to ruin my life. Um, and or, or when you're negotiating, selling a company is another way. I get anxious and I try to really plan in advance like script out all the possibilities of what could happen. And then again, I try to ha- figure out a worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is I have five other options to sell the company. This is just one. And so I'll try to diversify the good experiences in my life. So actually, that's always what I've done. So even when I was day trading, if I had a bad day trading day, I would switch focus completely to something else completely different happening in my life and and try to be good at that to reduce the anxiety about the day trading. Mm-hmm. So like maybe I would... Uh, Switch to playing from a bad day trading day to playing chess, and if I won a bunch of games of chess, I would be less anxious. Um, So, so people always say invest in yourself, um, but they never talk about how you should just like with all investing, you should diversify. So I diversify the way I invest in myself, and that helps spread out the anxiety or or compartmentalize the anxiety. So if if three things are going well, but two things aren't, I don't have to focus anymore on the two things that are causing me the most anxiety. But when I first had a lot of anxiety, I took clonopin and got horribly addicted to it. Right. And it was just the worst experience in the world being addicted to that.
1: And, and a lot of people don't realize the side effect of clonopin and those benzos is that it causes anxiety. And so the longer you're on it, the higher you dose you have to take, and it ultimately, and
0: it's makes really, really hard to anxiety. wean off. Like right. I don't know I don't know how people would get off clonopin. I've tried this. In the past, like I started taking it in my most anxious period. Um, I've had several anxiety ex- anxious periods, but let's say two thousand nine, I was anxious and I was really anxious about money. And I started taking clonabin, and I'm like, this is a miracle drug. This is the first drug. Antidepressants never worked for me. This is this is like it literally almost put up a wall in my head. So I so my brain wasn't allowed to think an anxious thought. And I took more and more. Depending on the anxiety, mm-hmm. but then I figured, oh, okay, I'm gonna—I don't need it anymore. I started making—I started solving my financial problems. I tried to get off, and day one was okay, but then like day two, and day one was even great. I had tons of ideas. I felt very creative, but then day two, it's like literally, I'm like sitting in a chair, and there's like a thunderstorm happening in my head, and I'm just like trying to hang on to the chair, like it's the worst experience in the world, trying to. Withdraw. You have to do it very slowly and wean yourself off over years.
1: Right, right. And I, unfortunately, like a lot of people don't know that when they start taking it. They don't realize how addictive it is.
0: Yeah. Like if you, if you start off taking like, I don't know what it is, four milligrams or whatever the measurement is, it's sort of like one half a milligram every six months you have to get off. Right. So...
1: And tell me about that. I know you've had ups and downs, dark times. Do you worry that you'll ever have those dark times again? Do you think that you will? Or do you feel like now you're better that you would never go back to the places that you've been before?
0: Uh no, I I it's like it's like Jay it's like the story of Jay Leno. So Jay Leno does st- when he was doing his show, The Tonight Show, he would do stand-up in Las Vegas every weekend, and that's the money he would live off of, is his Las Vegas money. Even though he was making $20 million a year running The Tonight Show, he just put all that in the bank and because he was so afraid he would go broke if he didn't save every dollar of this $20 million a year paycheck. And so I get a little nervous like that uh, if bad things start to happen. So let's say I'm involved in a bunch of investments, and one day I see, oh, two or three of them are not doing so well uh, I'll start to feel that anxiety that I felt all the way back in 2000 when the same thing happened it would bring back like that kind of trauma the world's not going I can't control the world exactly how I want i'm gonna this means eventually I'm gonna go broke uh, I would, but but then I just recognized to myself oh i've I've felt this a lot before and it and it never I never went you know that broke again and I just sort of remind myself that I've felt this feeling before and it doesn't work. Or if I'm in a relationship and I get anxious about where is she or how come she didn't return my call, I will remind myself I've gotten anxious about this in other relationships before. It never meant anything. And I should just, I just always remind myself of how, of the statistics in my past of when those anxieties actually told the truth. Now, I used to run a fund of hedge funds where I would invest in other hedge funds. And sometimes I would get obsessively worried that one of the hedge funds I was invested in was a scam. And I would research everything. Like, you know, it's like almost like I was a spy. And I would call my business partner on a Sunday and I would say, I'm absolutely sure this one fund is a scam. And he would like sigh and he'd say, you know, James, you say this about every other fund And uh just call them Monday, ask them questions, and you'll be fine. They'll answer you and they're fine. And he was always right. They answered me and they were fine. They convinced me and I took a big sigh of relief. I would say 90% of the things, funds I was worried about actually were scams. (laughs) And so sometimes what you're obsessive about turns out to be true, but you still have to avoid anxiety so you can deal with the worst case scenarios.
1: Is it only outside things that ever put you in a low place? Or do you ever feel like life could be going well and you'll take a strange dip anyway?
0: No, I... I uh, so that's sort of the difference between situational anxiety or depression and and more right. biological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never get sort of sad without a, a reason for it.
1: Okay. And then you've said before that women in your life... Will tell you you need medication or that you need something. Yes. Do, you, do people still worry about you?
0: Yeah, because uh, I think I think I I, um, I get really uh, obsessively eccentric. So, for instance, I'll throw out all of my you know a few years ago, I threw out all of my belongings and just started Airbnb being around. Uh, I didn't have any rental. I wasn't renting an apartment. I wasn't owning an apartment. I just started renting. And some people thought, hey, that sounds really cool and fun. Usually men would say that to me, like, oh, I wish I could do that, but I can't. And women tended to be worried, like, is everything okay? Are you kind of depressed or crazy? And uh, you know, finally it occurred that one of my female friends uh, called me and said, you know what? It's a little bit too creepy now. you've been doing this for years. You should rent an apartment. And she was right, and I, and I and I did. Uh, and you know, but in general, for some reason, um, I think I don't know if this is, you know, stereotyping too much, but I think at least the women in my life tend to be a lot more grounded than me.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so they tend to we tend to split the difference and they get worried if I'm going off too much on some tangent in my life and they wanna they wanna ground me. Or my daughters will will, for instance, never get in a they've built up this whole mythology that I'm the worst driver in the world. So they'll never get in a car with me, for instance.
1: And what about now that you have an apartment, you have stuff again, does that affect your mood? Does that affect your anxiety? Has it
0: Yeah. Like like buying things makes me anxious. Even though I have the money to buy things, I don't like I don't like um, you know, for years I would not buy anything because I only would own the things that fit in my backpack. So I never bought anything. And now that I have more stuff, and I need to buy like a chair or buy, buy renter's insurance, all of these things that I've never really done in a long time or or in my whole lifetime, uh, uh, it does make me a little anxious that money goes out. Like I think in the modern world, we're moving more and more away from kind of the hourly wage factory system that was created with kind of capitalism, you know, capitalism and and factoryism sort of went hand in hand. And that's really where the hourly wage started. And now we're in a different form of capitalism where income could be a lot more volatile. Like you have to write a book and then you get your book in stores and, and the book has to be good. And so it's a little bit more of a meritocracy that, that kind of the general global economy is moving towards not completely but but in part and so uh you know that kind of volatility is anxiety producing uncertainty is anxiety producing and and a little depressing if you don't make money for long periods of time and i but but when you buy things like you have to pay rent every month you have to do my kids have tuitions my uh kids have other like medical expenses uh, then you have to buy all these weird things just in the course of living life. You have to pay accountants and lawyers and uh, all this stuff. So that that so so money going out the the bank happens on a regular basis, but money coming in is very volatile. So that sometimes creates anxiety.
1: Do you set goals financially? Do you how much pay attention do you pay to it these days?
0: Uh, I don't set any goals financially. I mean. Cause there's, because most of it's out of my control. Like I try to invest in good. I, I I think process is more important than goals. so and this is related to the saying yes versus saying no question. Um, if someone pitches me an investment, I'm usually easily convinced that, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. and but I have rules, but I so so I know I have to follow my rules. Whenever I don't follow my rules, I've seen now over twenty years. If I don't follow my rules, I have a 0% success rate. If I follow my rules, I have about a 95% success rate. So uh, uh, I know if I just follow my own process with each thing that I do, um, and if the process is good and well thought out, then I don't need to have goals. Like good things will happen. So like last year, for instance, 2017, I had all sorts of financial and career goals. None of them, I achieved none of them. And... And yet I was the happiest I ever was by by the end of 2017, even though none of my goals were achieved and completely different goals unrelated to my original goals were achieved. So I don't really believe in goal setting. Do you believe in goal setting?
1: To an extent. But like in my case, too, I never set out to write a book. I didn't mean to write a second book. It's all just sort of happened because I've taken life been flexible. I think if I would have had a goal and I was really intent on making my goal happen, I could have um, been so hell-bent on that that I missed all these other opportunities that came my way.
0: Yeah, and like like even with a book you sort of have, in a weird way, you have to have a goal like you have a deadline. Right. Like the books due March 1st and but then I think if you take that goal and just translate it back into process, like okay, that means I have to finish my research by November 1st and then I have to write a thousand words a day starting november 1st and it's not like you have to in november you have to obsess on your goal deadline you just have to say how can i make sure i'm following my process today and i think that helps uh you know that's better than just blindly setting a goal and forgetting about all the different
1: things you need to do to achieve it yes i think that makes sense a lot of what you know the things that you do all make sense as you're talking about uh, even back to when you talk about stand-up and knowing what state to get in, if we were to back up to that, oh, that's something that like professional athletes do do I perform better with a little anxiety? Somebody backstage might be better off pumping themselves up. Somebody else calms themselves down. It all depends on knowing yourself and knowing how do I figure out what works for me. And in your writing, you've been very clear that you're not a self-help guru. You're not trying to tell other people what to do. You're just saying this is what works for me.
0: Yeah, because I see. I, I mean, and you probably see this too, because we're we're kind of writing in sort of the same industry and same type of audience. Uh, so much of self help out there is just bullshit. Yep. And then, particularly, I see now in the kind of entrepreneurship self help space, there are so many people giving entrepreneurship advice about how to be, you know, productive and and be a leader and, and do sales and they've never run a business before. And they're writing all these books and self-help. And I think it's really important that you've experienced and studied the things you're writing about and that, you know, you have a process in place to, you know, help you succeed. And that process is more important than the, than the outcomes and the goals. And, um, I forgot what what you were saying about stand up. Just
1: knowing what how to what state you work best in, whether you're better off to be a little anxious before you do it, and just knowing about yourself, and then you share what works for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. So, so, so the idea is I only write about something if I've experienced it. So, uh, which means, and usually means, I've experienced it from a real low point, and then figured things out to get to a higher point. But so much self help is like, here's how you be a leader right. because I'm such a great leader, and all of that is like bullshit right like you have to be a bad leader to learn how to be a good leader i think
1: right and in your case though you share a lot of really personal stuff and you do on your podcast what you do in the articles that you write do you ever get like a a vulnerability hangover where you're all oops i shouldn't have said that or did i share too much or is it ever awkward or uncomfortable for you when you do share what's going on in your personal life
0: yeah i mean i kind of have a role where I don't actually publish an article unless I'm afraid I'm sharing too much. Oh, <laughs> so now I don't that I I don't use that rule a hundred percent of the time, um, but let's say ninety percent of the time. So so, and that does get me into trouble often. Sometimes I'll sh- I I try not to ever say anything that will hurt anybody else. That's like the only rule I have. Like I share, I'll say bad things about me, but I'll never say bad things about someone else. Um, but I'll say anything about myself, uh, just because then people know, okay, he passed the test. He's he's telling the truth because he's willing to say this about himself. Um, so there's a there's kind of a tactic behind it. But I also don't think it's interesting unless you're unless you're kind of sharing your your stories and telling and telling a story. People want to read stories. That's how for for seventy thousand years. That's how humans. Um, you know, spread knowledge was not through facts like they do in the school system now, but through storytelling.
1: Right. And the first two times I was on your podcast, actually, people came up and I got the same question uh, from people either by email or I had a couple of people come up to me and ask me the same question about you. Uh, any, any guesses what people want to know from your guests?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, is he really, is he like that in real life?
1: Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They probably email all your guests to ask that question, but that's exactly it. Or I had people that, it was like they knew, but they really just wanted that validation where they say, he's really like that when the mic's off, right? And I say, yeah, that's really him. And then they seem like, oh, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And so uh, people obviously feel like they know you from, from what they read and to know all about your life, but is that ever— and how uncomfortable is that? For most of us, I'm a therapist, so I hate talking about my life. I like to talk about other people's problems and solving them. But um, I share a little bit, but it's really uncomfortable. How do you do that?
0: Well, you're you're a professional, right? So you're trained to not talk about yourself. Right. Like You're not really allowed to talk about yourself in, 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 in a therapy session with a patient. Right. And I'm not a therapist. I'm just a writer. So, uh, and I have a lot of experiences that affected me. And since I have no training on helping people other than my own experience, I have to write about my experience uh, in order to help people. Now, the things that I'm naturally good at, which are, I I think very few people are naturally good at anything, but there's no point in me writing about them because I don't really know how I got good at the things that I'm naturally good at. But uh, the things that I had to work really hard and struggle to get good at are deeply ingrained in my experience but I have to tell the story of how I got there whether yeah. it's starting from you know being broke or being in a bad relationship or being suicidal I have to kind of start with the low point and there's an arc to that story you know similar to any other arc where finally at the end I'm able to come back and tell the story sort of the end of the arc of the hero <laughs>
1: And then is it surreal, though, that people get so enamored? I mean, the New York Times wrote about you throwing out all your stuff. Yeah. Were you were surprised that people were just that interested in, like, what's James doing next?
0: <laughs> yeah, because, like, like take that New York Times article, for instance. Homeless people are also don't have any belongings. They don't write about every homeless person in the street. For some reason, they were writing about me. And I t- and they used the word self-help guru, and I said, don't use that. And the reporter said, I'm sorry, we had to use it. Like, he apologized mm-hmm. to me the, the day of. Um but then a lot of people wrote to me. Um, Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin, wanted to do a, a scripted show based on a character like that. Uh, other companies wrote to me, and uh, I was just trying. I was just trying something, a different way to to live for a while because I like to experiment, and and not necessarily experiment. Like I think Tim Ferriss is a very good experimenter. Right, like he wants to. Um, live a long and healthy life as do I do and many people do. So Hillocks do body hacks and other hacks. I just kind of experiment on things that make me curious. Like what would it be like to just have nothing and live in Airbnbs? I'm not necessarily trying to um, improve myself that way. I just want to live I just want to maybe be a little happier for a while. And so I did it for a few years and then stopped doing it.
1: Then when you stopped doing it, was there any concern that people would lose a little bit of that mystery? Yeah. uh,
0: I was scared. I was. I was like, "Oh my gosh, uh, no! Steven Spielberg's not going to want to do a TV show." Or uh, people think of me now as this big minimalist. W- what? How am I going to explain that I live in an apartment now? And uh, the reality is, you just can't. You, you know, you always have to move on to the next thing. Like you can't let anybody else label you. I mean, people. Constantly want to label you like. Right. For years, I wrote about finance. For the first eight or nine years of me writing books, I just wrote about finance, and everybody was like, "Oh, he's that finance guy." And then I started writing about completely different things, like the opposite of finance, like going broke and then and how to recover, and and then just weird stories, and people thought it was crazy. Like I lost a big size audience, but then you get a new audience, and so you just have to you just have to do what your creative compulsions tell you to do. So like, not comparing myself to Picasso, but he changed styles like every three or four years and was just do completely different things. Andy Warhol, completely different things. I mean, other writers can get away with doing the same thing over and over, but even like you get a guy like John Grisham, he doesn't always write legal thrillers anymore. I mean, his last thriller I think was a, kind of a writer's thriller Mm -hmm. and then he writes he's written books about sports and he's you know he's done all sorts of things
1: right so then well and i guess this is coming from the guy that wrote reinvent yourself too right
0: yeah like people want people feel an urge to reinvent themselves every few years you you get bored doing the same thing over and over again Uh, and you have to figure out new formats and new things that excite you um and some people say, oh, you have to focus, like you have to play the violin for 20 years in order to be the greatest in the world. And maybe that's true, but that's just not for most people. Like most people don't want to do the same right. thing for, for 20 years. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll